Hey there, this is LibUX, a podcast about design and user experience for libraries and the higher ed web. Michael here, and I am joined today by uh, Tim Broadwater, who um, recently uh, published the most trafficked article on LibUX ever. <laughs> How you doing? I'm good. How are you? a uh, UX architect at WVU Libraries. There's about eight libraries on three or four different campuses. So I'm I'm always kind of interested when uh like these kind of titles come up. Is that a title that you you were able to craft yourself or a position they created specifically? Uh it was actually a combination of both. So it was uh um a position that needed to be created and um it was also, um, I had input on kind of what the requirements for the position would be. Um, and so uh, it was put out there and I applied for it as some others did as well. And so I kind of moved from um, a user experience kind of designer to a UX architect there. What do your tasks look like? From day to day. So um, I work um, kind of in tandem with um, our web librarian, who's fantastic, and our kind of systems development office. And um, I guess my job's kind of that uh, it's a 50-50 between UI and UX. So I UI-wise, user interface, I kind of design um, our websites, digital collections, and our web applications and more. <laughs> as needed. And then um, UX-wise, I kind of conduct a lot of the design research um, that informs projects um, in the beginning phases, uh, a lot of the uh, different types of research, um, like analytics or surveying or focus groups. And then once we have projects that go live, let's say um, web applications or websites or digital collections, uh, I conduct usability testing for those. Um, and then um, that data is used to improve um, the user interface, content, or create development enhancements for uh, going forward. So you guys regularly test and reiterate? This is just part of your system now? Oh, yeah. we. Uh, I ran about six tests in December alone that were specifically on how our primary target audience used um, our mobile website. And then also we just launched a user interface for open access textbooks. Um, so I conducted tests for that to see um, if students could navigate through and what kind of formats that they were, that they preferred to use. And then we use Hydra um, for the digital, uh, for the, our digital collections. And so we've done a bunch of custom work for the user interfaces for that um, specifically for our collection. So we've tested that as well. And so, yeah, we, we test a lot <laughs> and design, I, I test a lot and design a lot. So it's really kind of a 50, 50 right now with the, t- the team size that we have. You guys actually like invest in some serious continuing education too, right? Yeah. So um, the Nielsen Norman group have these really great, I mean, it's, it's kind of one of the very, one of few kind of UX kind of workforce development or continuing education 
curricula, in lack of a better word, that's kind of out there. And so they have these UX kind of weeks that they host all of all year long and all around the country. And then the Nielsen Norman group themselves, are, they'll come in and conduct studies and they'll come in and do training as well. So um, the libraries has been fantastic about sending me to get uh, one of their UX certifications. So they actually offer certifications it's um, like the master's level certification is about 150 hours of classes. And wow. That's, yeah, a... And that's a lot. And then that's like also, you know, 15 exams that you have to pass and you can only can take them on three times and you have to have a certain score on them to pass them. I don't mean to butt in. Is there any kind of accreditation? How do, how do you guys determine that like the certification has value or is it just the fact that it's A, Nielsen and B, there really aren't any other certifications out there that you can even name? So um, it's kind of funny that you ask because um, there's a, uh, it's kind of a, that it's uh, the Nielsen Norman group and B UX as kind of a, a degree field or certification field is kind of budding right now. So I have a background Kind of, of an, I started out as kind of an art teacher and graphic designer and then kind of learned from graphic design, multimedia and web and then moved more into the development side of like front end development and, and then kind of ended up here kind of in um, user experience land for lack of a better word. And, um, and I love the work, but, uh, if you kind of look out there, um, you know, there are degrees in like human computer interactions and there are some, um, master's level certificate programs that are like MPSs or masters of professional studies that are in user experience. I think like Rhode Island school of design or MICA, um, the Maryland Institute of creative art, they have some, but um, it's just now starting to, Oh, UX can be an undergraduate degree and it's just a grad degree. So I think the majority of the people who are practitioners in it now either have a background in human computer interactions or, you know, graphic design or, or something similar. And they've kind of been information services. And so it's kind of interesting because the Nielsen Norma group has, you know, these trainings, but they have definitely these specific types of tracks because they know that everyone's kind of come in and coming into it, um, from these different needs, you know, there's tracks specifically for the UX manager. If you're wanting to look um, to, cause you're the head of a team or if you're more specifically focused on UX research or web design or mobile design or interaction design, they kind of have those. So I've gone to a handful of different um, and, and fantastic UX kind of workforce developments and, uh, or continuing education, as you said. And I find that, NNG, the Nessa Norma Group, is probably the best that's kind of out there, just from my own perspective. Yeah, I would I would think so, if only because of their frequency of being cited. They're easily the ones you turn to most, you know, whether it's like, oh, is there a question about, um, I think one that came up in Slack today was whether there were any studies about internationalization of uh, icon recognition mm-hmm. and the first few articles that came up were Nielsen ones. So just by dint of them publishing and, and continuously, continuously like putting back into the community, there's a great deal of weight and credibility that they communicate. Yeah. And Don Norman has a lot of fantastic books that design managers and graphic designers, and it's the kind of required reading for user interface design. That's innocuous, but does the purpose. And Jacob Nielsen is, is kind of <laughs> the guru of usability. So 
Um, recently, I was just kind of interested, and I started to look out there, like what kind of degrees are there? And, um, advanced degrees, there's not so many, but there's this kind of trend that's growing right now for undergraduates. So people who want to go into this field, there's a direct path where it used to be kind of a hybrid of design or technology or information or human computer interactions and some psychology. even. so, um, yeah, I've, I've gone to a bunch of others like adaptive path and, and, uh, some others that are great and they all have different, you know, kind of appeals and strategies, but, um, I think they are tough. I've actually <laughs> taking the exams and doing the courses. I mean, not only does it get you in connection with other kind of professionals in the UX field, but I mean, it is, it is an academic workout. It is. And so some people don't, some people just take a couple here and there and some go for like a whole kind of series. And, but I, my, you know, kind of my, my workplace actually has been, I've landed in a great place in the library system at WVU libraries and they've been very supportive of my position. And, uh, and there kind of was no user experience librarian or user experience architect or designer before I applied there. And the reason that attracted me to the position is that they were looking for someone, you know, we need someone user experience now. And so that's why I applied there years ago. UX is certainly not relegated to the world of web or software design. And I wonder whether there is, in the same way that curricula are formed around around web design that is maybe a year or two dated. Um, but I wonder if there's actually sort of like a, a zeitgeist or if we have reached something like peak UX, because now there are other things vying for the attention that UX had, like service design, which, you know, I like to argue is, is part of the, the holistic whole. But I, I wonder if the, I wonder if the whole like UX discipline is um, subject to the same, to the same concerns or, or maybe rapid evolution that like the web uh, industry is. Well, so I, I think the term is, but I do not think the practice is. And, and the reason why I say that are a couple, one being that every time I attend any type of user experience, you know, workshop or training or certification, be it adaptive path, Nielsen Norman group or anything there, uh, they're all the people there are just like trying they're vying to get to get the people in their in their um in their workplace to understand the value of of user experience because it's very um because uh, i think it's amorphous to some people and even though the term gets used a lot ux ui cx you know customer experience service design um I think that uh, uh, the practice of it and application of it doesn't happen as much as the buzz terms. And so um, I know for a fact, I know a handful of professionals that are great web developers and, and they're great designers and have been doing web design for years. And they refer to themselves as, um, as UX designers or UX architects. And however, they've, they've never once conducted um, any type of usability test or um, intercept or kind of any type of, uh, you know, kind of evaluation that involves their users. They've, they don't meet their users ever. And so I think the term gets broadly applied to where, um, you know, it's becomes, 
uh, come as like a buzzword, you know, that gets associated and like, we should put that on the resume because we're looking for it. The, the difference is though, is that I think we're seeing, I also have friends that work in, um, uh, different startups, some in Washington, DC, some in Pittsburgh, some in Florida, some in Austin, Texas and Denver. And so it's kind of like the startups, like the tech startups kind of get it because they actually have UX teams. They understand the value of it. And it doesn't matter if they're companies that are like Airbnb or Uber or, you know, if they're something that's like um, Pinterest, even they, they see the value of, of, you know, improving the experience for their users. And that's why their, their products, um, and their services do extremely well because the users love it. It's, it's a fantastic experience. And so it's kind of now seeping. Um, so you, I think you see it as, uh, you know, in tech startups and, and new startups, and you're starting to see it um, spread into the world. But I would say in general, the association may be that it's, it's with web or web development and to a large degree, that's um, true, but like you said, there's huge components that are customer service, also customer, you know, experience, service design. And when I attend these places, there are there are a handful maybe of higher ed um, institutions that are there. There's I have not encountered any library any other library kind of employees at these, but who I am encountering are like Boeing and Home Depot and like Home Depot sent, sent their entire team to like one in Texas or, or Disney Imagination Studios or, uh, you know, pretty big kind of um, companies that are seeing the value of it. A little bit of higher ed, but um, not libraries that, that I've encountered so far. So how does a UX person from Boeing or Home Depot respond when they're like, hey, Tim, good to meet you. Where are you from? And you're like, uh, so-and-so libraries. Um, so it's just kind of, you know, I, I don't think it's a negative response at all. They just, to them, they're out with many different companies, many different services. Um, I've attended some that have people that are from wildlife centers that are, some are, the one I met with the specifically at Boeing was, you know, the woman was trying to develop you know, a native app for their engineers to take inside the planes, but they couldn't connect to Wi-Fi once they were inside the metal plane. Oh, <laughs> so like, so how do we, how do I do this? And how do I get the, you know, how do I get a product that works for our users and their users happen to be their own engineers. Whereas like Home Depot, you know, their users are potential customers and, and who want to spec out um, what colors or room remodelings, you know, kind of, what would they do where there are some web teams that are specifically trying to get any buy-in, I think from their institution or their company or their higher ed place of work that, you know, that this, we have to make decisions that are informed on data. And if we're not conducting any type of usability assessment or tests or surveying or design research, we have to use the pre-existing data that's out there. And so it is kind of UX, but it's kind of coming from the end that we can't do any conducting of any tests or assessment, but we can at least incorporate the best practices in the UI side. I can see that there's probably a lot of benefit just going to these things to see user experience so legitimized. Um, you know, if you can point to 
Home Depot or Boeing or Pinterest in, in there. And you can say like, oh, you know, look, these peers are doing it. There's also tremendous value in kind of like hearing about the strategy or, or learning how to pitch user research to stakeholders who, you know, maybe to no fault of their own have just really just never thought about it before. Yeah, I think I have a lot of, I feel, <laughs> I, I think, and I say this, is that user experience people have a lot of heart and they have to really kind of, um, if depending on what fields they're working in, not everyone gets to work at a fabulous tech startup, you know, so um, they, you have to kind of get out to some degree, you know, why this is important and, um, and why, you know, this kind of matters. And so, um, one of the articles, the article that you mentioned that I just wrote was kind of a case study that was about, you know, how we can, we could shoot in the dark or we can shoot from the hip over and over and over again. And sometimes we get an okay success with users, but sometimes we get, and I would say most of the times we get, you know, an absolute failure that is just, is not working. And so, um, you know, in in that instance, we were working specifically on a web application, and you know, at looking back over it, there were a lot of missed opportunities. One of which is like working with our user in any way possible, um, getting their input, getting their feedback, getting them to interact with paper prototypes, or getting them to use something along the way, and then assess that an improvement. And so, it was a lot of just kind of jumping around um, uninformed and then at the case study kind of looks back out over a year of kind of to some degree wasted time on the part of everyone involved, the stakeholders, the developers and the designers and kind of, you know, how do we go forward? We have to make decisions based on user data. And, and I'm starting to, I, and there is a change, you know, definitely where I think that has to occur kind of everywhere that has these new positions. But um, even in the time between writing that article versus now, I mean, embracing kind of user data and culture, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of, I mean, it has kind of changed and there's a lot of great intentions and everyone has great valuable information and, and it's, you know, kind of all feeds into, but at some point it can be deafening and then mute out your user. And that's kind of what happened in this situation. So it is a learning experience, you know, and I think um, what we're kind of looking at now is, you know, we looked we look at our traffic and we look at surveying and we look at the office of the university registrar and kind of get as much data as we can. That's qualitative and quantitative and survey based. And, and so now we have, you know, a, a really decent picture of what our user is, who our user is and how many of them are. And we're kind of in a unique position to where like 75% of our users are undergraduate students from like 17 to 24 age group. And so that affords us a couple it's, it's a hard, it's a crux because it's, it affords us some great opportunities. Like we can be really innovative and experimentative and we can incorporate a hamburger, you know, on the desktop, which, you know, if you say that to anyone, like a hamburger icon on your desktop, like everyone gasps because it's, because it's this horrible thing, but it's like, but I don't know, our users are used to it. But then the, the crux is the other side is that is our target audience is constantly changing. So, we have to kind of always be able to take 
the pulse. And even if we put something out there and we're like, oh, we don't need to revisit the design for two years, we can't even rest on our laurels. We can't do that. So one of the things we're doing now after a giant redesign is actually like one year later is taking the pulse with, you know, um, doing kind of card sorting with our users and even doing kind of tree testing and just to find out, are we, what we have seems to be testing well, but maybe we should just check the pulse of our user again against what we have. So it's a constant process. Yeah, that's something that I often think about because, you know, I kind of like the hamburger menu, you know, and uh, um, I love uh, the hamburger menu, by the way, going oh. <laughs> on record. I think it's great. And- let's let's spend two minutes to talk about the hamburger menu, because I, um, I, you know, I recognize doing what I do that the hamburger menu is under intense scrutiny and hate. But it is something that I have like, you know, I baked into our, you know, our library's uh, pattern library sort of mm-hmm. um, like, like from the get go. Um, and you know, the, and I have out of self suspicion, I guess, uh, st- um, done a lot of click tracking and you know, the engagement on the hamburger menu is what I can say definitively the same as engagement on the top menu mm-hmm. was being not very much at all. <laughs> um, but it, it, it hasn't, changed and um and i think what it i i can't deny that it affords a certain amount of like convenience in terms of like design because the um the complexity of not just something like the library homepage or the library database application but the complexity of maintaining a front end framework that must be as malleable to to adapt to so many different kinds of applications and so many different kinds of users that man that makes like just having something like the hamburger menu mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, is, is a tremendous convenience and time saver. It, it is. It has, and it affords extensibility, it response, you know, uh, responsiveness and then um, sustainability. I mean, adding and going forward, it, it works. And here's the thing about it. I, it. I always bring up these two points to everyone who, when I sense hamburger hate, so I'm always like, if there's hamburger hate out there, there's two things. The first one is, it's a lot of the user and the user experience kind of um, profession or field. Um, you know, what gets cited a lot for the hamburger menu icon is, um, is the A-B testing results, like pure clicking results. And and there is something to be said about A-B testing, but there's also something to be said against A-B testing because a lot of people are like, well, what is it you're actually testing? I mean, you're testing clicks. And so if the difference is 10%, how much is that really? We recently conducted a test, for example, where we had the kind of the Ask a, ask a Librarian um, kind of mechanism, big green button, Oh, Tom Moore, I, I'm really excited to hear what you're about to say. Yeah, so we, we put it at the top right of the website, and then we also put it floating on the right side that was always centered. And so no matter where you scrolled on the page, it was always centered there versus just static at the top, and when you scroll down, you lose it. Um, and so the difference in between the clicks of the two was like 11 maybe 10%. And so I don't see like a a huge, like, oh my God, 40% difference or like 30% difference. It was literally, it comes down to preference kind of that point. Um, And so if it gets to a certain, I think so people will have to see if it works for you or not. And for us, for undergraduate students, 
I mean, the hamburger makes sense. And it's something that, you know, um, that they're definitely familiar with, especially when we have, I think we all like to assume that if, uh, you know, a student's younger people who are coming up, they know how phones work and they know how technology works and they know how email works. I would argue that the opposite, I would say that the differences between a website or an application or a web app, I mean, uh, it's becoming seamless now. Interaction is like unifying it, which is a good thing. So there's a lot of people, you know, if you have web applications versus a native app versus a website, you know, the interaction almost has to kind of be the same, even with the operating system to some degree. And so I, uh, that's the one thing. But the other thing is this, is that I see the hamburger as the flip side of the, the floppy disk icon argument, meaning that in a lot of software, people who grew up with the 3.5 floppy disk know that every software program that came out there, um, Microsoft Word or, you know, any type of uh, program, you would go, oh, I'm clicking on the floppy disk icon uh, that means I'm saving my document. Well, the truth is, is that these users, you know, the um, generation you know, Z or the, the millennials, generation Y, uh, they've never used a floppy disk once in their life. And so <laughs> that symbol doesn't make any sense to them whatsoever. And so you're seeing it going away. So software programs that once used, like the Microsoft Office products or Adobe products or anyone that actually associated the saving feature with a disk icon, it's kind of weaning out. Well, I see the the hamburger is just kind of weaning in. It's just something that's now happening, and it doesn't mean people are talking about, well, it's not here yet. Well, it's it's probably going to be here in five years completely. So and and everything that I see research-wise and user engagement-wise and the statistics that certain – people are doing on it, it's just becoming more and more widely used. So I I would say, you know, definitely those two things. A, B tests, what are you really testing? Because they do get a lot of criticism. And the second thing is icons come and go, and this one's coming in. So I think the lasting impact of something like the hamburger menu is one that is going to, for good, uh, sort of divorce folks from the from putting so much importance on like menu items or top menu items, right? So those who those th- there are you know quite a bit of um, case studies and, and examples of major applications that have tried a hamburger menu and decided, ooh, let's uh, let's just pare down to like a, a four or five icon tab bar or or something of the sort. But what I think this is illustrating is um, the tab or the hamburger menu is employed essentially to hide a glut of menu items off canvas or, you know, behind some other kind of a, a function. Whereas when people are recognizing that like, oh, maybe the engagement for some of those pages aren't as high as they would expect and or hope that they bring the three or four most menu items to the front and realize that, well, that's sufficient. Yeah, like like what I find is that, you know, our I when when we employed the hamburger menu, my my exact words were were pretty um or my my argument for it was fairly like blunt. It was like, you know, these are menu items that we need to keep for various reasons or to appease various stakeholders. Um, but we know that they also don't get the engagement that um, maybe they would hope and they never will. So we 
happily hit it in favor of pulling maybe the top two or three most um, important action items on that given page up to um, up to the front. So um, so what I I hope and, and and what I think is like you know I'm 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 not ready to commit that the hamburger menu is going to be there in two or three or four years. Yes, Google has adopted it with Material Design, but you know YouTube, which is part of the Google Material Design framework, just dropped it. I I think it will remain in situations where we need to represent like a huge menu and it's for whatever reason, it's not sufficient to throw it in the footer. Um, but I hope that people are just going to be like, you know, you know, the top menu really isn't that all important and it really never has been. Mm. See, I think that, uh, I, I guess I see, um, different ways that it's being used with, with different, even different libraries. Um, and, uh, there's a lot of websites that are migrating to a trend now that, and I don't know if you've seen SVA library, um, um, library.sva.edu. Um, it has like, as every you know good web design is supposed to, to have like your calls to action on the homepage, which can be your, your main navigation items, which is kind of using a task based organization as opposed to a, you know, a user-based organization or, you know, a, a goal-based organization. But as soon as you start scrolling down the page, those items hide and they go into a hamburger. As soon as you scroll up, back to the top, they reappear. Oh, I see it. I'm, I'm scrolling right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A couple different sites that are using it in very creative ways beyond just I hiding the mega menu or hiding the – main navigation and sub navigation and the huge kind of expandable beyond expandable kind of left-hand nav or whatever. So I think it's just now getting to the point to where people are kind of, they're comfortable enough to start using it in creative ways. And so we're just going to see more different type of iterations and uses of it. Um, I, I think you've convinced me and, and just this kind of like dovetails in about your observation that, um, the seams between application and operating system and site are kind of blurring out that, you know, people are developing. I, th- I think the, the success of something like a hamburger menu or, or alternative is also kind of hand in hand with um, the increasing literacy of what, like gesture vocabularies, whereas like, you know, to, um, you know, swipe left to right across the screen of your phone and or you know that the menu area is somewhere on that left region. Whereas, you know, like maybe like five to 10 years ago, we were, we're all um, conditioned to have all the menus and all that up at the top. And, you know, this is part of the reason why we continue to have them located at the top too. It's like now it's just now the menu area is kind of occupying the entire like left edge of the screen. Mm-hmm. I think there's like, um, I, I mean, I could even see some or you know, an increasing number of sites and applications going maybe like the Snapchat route where there literally are no icons or, um, or, um, or anything like that. Yeah. It's actually interesting. Pure gesture. I, yeah. There's a, I think it's just, I think it's a tool that's in, um, a designer's toolbox now or a UI kind of toolbox. And so I've seen 
um, which is interesting because I just presented today to our web team about different types of navigations and how they can work. And I have a, a slide share up about it on my page, but it's basically that, you know, there are these um, disappearing navigations. And then when you scroll back up, they reappear. There are these navigations that are huge and then have like this. Um, and when you start scrolling down, they turn into this condensed hamburger version. Um, but there's sticky navs and disappearing navs and hamburger desktop navs and mega menus or something that a lot, some libraries are moving to that are really great to where they actually can get more of their services and resources right there on every single page. Um, and so it decreases scrolling and skimming because you can get more and it works. I mean, users know how to use it. So I think there's just, there's a myriad of different kind of, um, design options out there. And I just, I guess I see that the hamburger is just a piece of it that is going to um, continue to be seen, um, I think, for quite some time. And I would say if you are a higher education, um, you know, an academic library, I don't know if you've seen like, a, I, I would point people to the University of Toronto libraries if you've never seen it. Um, they actually have utility navigation. A lot of libraries are moving to this um, MyLab account where they log in, they can track their home library for their library loan, and they can see what rooms they reserve and, you know, all these kind of different kind of cool things to where it's kind of an account-based. But then if you roll over on the University of Toronto's website, these icons that are in the kind of top right um, what a utility navigation area, you get these giant mega menu fly downs that really kind of give you, Oh, what research are you looking for? Are you looking for articles or databases or newspapers or what services do you need? And then it lists like five columns of services. Um, so I think uh, I have, I guess I can sum it up like this. I have a meme, you know, at my work, <laughs> at my <laughs> cubicle at work and it's share from um, Clueless. And and it says, like, <laughs> left navigation, ugh, as if, you know, because I think the left-hand navigation is kind of the lazy way to deal with your secondary tier navigation. And there are so many different options now that are out there that really it's just um, so many libraries fall into horizontal nav. And once you go to one of those sections, we pop out the left nav, and that's the way it that's the way information should be structured. And I think what we're seeing now is that with long scrolling pages and, and different type of navigation items or navigations that are sticky and stay on the page that have drop downs and flyouts, there's different ways to get to the same information. And it's more important to evaluate what works best for you and your users um, as opposed to playing it safe or going with the peers because it's easy to look at everyone else and we do, I'm, I'm guilty of this too, because um, one person I talked to who was from at one of the usability kind of weeks for Nielsen Norm Group was like, why do all higher education websites look the same? And it's like, because we're all looking at each other for peer research. No one's looking at like an AT&T website. Like no one's looking at apartments.com or no one's looking, which has this great search box functionality. And, I'm, and would argue is like, that's a perfect example for like a library website. Um, apartments.com because it's a great cause to action and it gets people what they need. So, and it uses the hamburger icon as well. 
<laughs> and uh, I think on that note, we are at our time. Tim, how can people like get in touch with you? Reach out. Um, there's um, uh, I I don't know how many Tim Broadwaters there are out there, but um, uh, my website's timbroadwater.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on SlideShare. So. I'm also in the great LibUX Slack channel on a daily basis. So, you know, you can definitely feel free to hit me up. Cool, man. Um, also, uh, I, we should mention that even though it is a week old in internet years, the um, <laughs> uh, Tim's just written a, a, a really an amazing case study that could have appeared in like Weave or um, another more legitimate um, uh, outlet that has been picked up by, you know, web designer news, UX weekly, and a bunch of other things. Um, it's really resonating. It's a little bit bleak, um, but, um, instructive and you can find it on with UX. It's going to be right at the top. It's going to be called, uh, why am I doing this to our users? I think everyone can relate. And I think most people have, I tried to put in an upswing at the end. So there was a positivity about going forward at the very end. So <laughs> I like, I like, I like to think that, you know, since, um, Gosh, you know, like most people are going to scroll maximum like 33% down the page or thereabouts that they are leaving just as they get into the most sorrowful part of the article and mm-hmm. thus coloring their day is bleak monochrome mm-hmm. as they continue throughout. <laughs> well, I hope that's not the case. So <laughs> I hope I'll just scroll a little further. <laughs> if, 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 if an emoji can describe your case study, it would be the cat crying. Mm. Um, On that note, yeah. um, <laughs> I and a bunch of other people really appreciate the work. So um, thank you so much. Well, thank you. I appreciate being on here. And thank you for all the great stuff that's in UX. It's fantastic resource. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Tim just wrote a, a case study um, that really could have been published in Weave, so and he decided to throw it on the LibUX site. Uh, the, blah, 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 blah. Well, that is an example of me uh, where I'm going to edit that shit out. Uh, <laughs>